and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're speaking to James Samworth, a partner at Schroeder's Greencoat, the market-leading energy transition infrastructure investment fund from the offices here in Victoria, London. James is a 15-year veteran in the sector, having transitioned from a decade with British Steel via an MBA at London Business School. James joined Foresight in 2009 and then to Schroeder's Greencoat as a partner in 2019. James is a deep thinker on the energy transition. He gave great insights into areas including life as a renewable investor, how investment decisions are made, the past, present and future of the infrastructure investment industry, the role of bioenergy, hydrogen, storage and innovation in the transition. It was great to have the opportunity to dig into the energy transition journey with a genuine master in this field. It was a conversation that you just won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. James, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us today. Um, before you started out into the renewable energy and infrastructure world, uh, you spent 10 years in the steel industry. Could you tell us a little bit how how you you made that transformation from steel? Because it's, you know, philosophically really quite the opposite of what you do right now. Yeah. So I love working in the steel industry. It was great fun. I learned a huge amount. Um, but it's a very tough and competitive industry, particularly for producers in Western Europe with their you know, labor costs and energy costs and, and so on. And I uh, decided I, I wanted to, to make a, a transition in my career, a, a career change. And I thought about what I thought were the big sort of challenges of my remaining working lifetime and, and thought that tackling climate change and particularly financing that uh, was probably you know, quite near the top of, of, uh, of challenges and therefore there might be good opportunities in it. And, and I decided that was a big enough change to um, to warrant you know, taking a, a definitive step to make it, and so so decided to to do the MBA uh, to, to help on that journey. Yeah, brilliant. So very very similar to myself. Yeah. I spent uh, spent some, too many years in investment banking and law, and then decided to that's well, there's, there should be more to life than this, <laughs> yep. and went to the MBA, and uh, at the end of it came out. Um, in, in renewable energy. So for me, there was a very, it was a big uh, kind of you know, transitionary step. Um, uh, for you, is it, was it similar? Yeah, they're clearly very different, very different industries. Um, I guess uh, in my time in the steel industry, actually people didn't talk that much about the carbon emissions. I, I guess that's maybe a function of, of when it was, but also there was a slight acceptance that steel was fundamental to modern life um, and that emissions would ultimately have to be mitigated, but it felt a long time into the future and there were lots of other things to do first. Um, it's obviously started to get much more into the focus and I think that's part of the, the sort of transition from we've got to reduce our emissions a lot to we need to actually get to net zero. Okay. And uh, kind of going back to your experience at the time, you graduated in the middle of a financial crisis trying to get into finance. Yeah. That must have been pretty difficult. How, how did yeah. you go about that? It, it wasn't plan A to <laughs> <laughs> be unemployed halfway through an MBA at the depths of the, the worst financial crisis since the 30s. Um, so I, it was a bit of a journey, I suppose. I, I, 
decided to just try and network, network my way into any opportunity um, in you know, private assets, private capital. Uh, and I did a couple of internships, like one quite long term uh, in, in private equity. And then I got a break. I got very lucky and, and Foresight were looking for somebody who was um, sort of investment literate or trainable, um, but had a good understanding of process industries because they had an investment thesis that at the time more waste than renewables, but these sectors were going to go through transitions of becoming more mature process industries and uh, and they wanted someone who, who who had come from that type of background, and that was my entry. Brilliant, yeah, yeah, and, yeah very, very good starting place. You know, yeah. very, you know an, an excellent firm. But today you're at uh, Schroeder's Greencoat, uh, which is another excellent firm. I think it, you'd be slightly reductive just to be calling it, uh, you know, an infrastructure investments um, firm because it really has been a pioneer in the space. Um, if I'm if I'm not wrong, it produced the first listed um, winds energy fund in the UK, yes, that's right. and has been kind of leading the way with a with a lot of um, a lot of the kind of the, the energy tra- transition that's really at the forefront. Could you tell me, like, what is like, what's your what's your job? What's your position? What's what's life like um, in in this firm? Sure, I run a co-run the the energy transition team at Greencoat, which in our language is in everything other than wind and solar, and I guess most of what we do is is wind and solar. Uh, we are a renewable energy infrastructure investor. We acquire operating assets, some construction stage assets. We do a little bit of development. We might be doing a bit more in the future, and we have investments in in wind quite a lot, a reasonable amount in solar. Uh, we have some biomass, some uh, anaerobic digestion, some waste recycling businesses, uh, and we're starting to invest in some, some green hydrogen and renewable heating. So a, a bit of a variety. I suppose it's nice that you, you think of us as a, as a leader. I think that um, reputations are hard won and easily lost. So I think we're very conscious of the need to do our job really well for clients. I don't think there's any magic or secret source or, or anything. I think we all try to um, uh, invest in high quality assets. Uh, I was thinking uh, when you asked the question of, of what Warren Buffett said he learned from Charlie Munger, where he used to try and buy fair companies at great prices. Uh, and he learned to buy great companies at fair prices. And I think we try and buy great assets at fair prices and then manage them really well. And all of our funds are long dated funds. Uh, and so we try to be good partners for people for the long term, whether that's our clients or our counterparties, our co-shareholders uh, and developers. We have numerous repeat relationships with whom we've acquired from, in some cases, literally dozens of times. Uh, but we work hard to do as good a job as we can for our clients and we take our duties seriously. Okay, brilliant. And that's kind of, um, kind of nicely lead us into kind of the more kind of nuts and bolts of the, of the job. Like I understand the um, like the risks associated with development. I understand stand all of um, but obviously the risk uh, risk uh, as a developer are you have a green field and you need to get the thing built. That's a lot of risk. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, but for a kind of firm that kind of specialises in buying already built assets, like what's uh, what are the, the specific skills um, associated with being kind of a secondary investor like that? So. I think in terms of acquiring, probably the, the biggest judgments are economic. So, um, you know, what power price are your assets going to secure in the 2030s and 2040s? You, you can't sign a PPA going out that far. So, so you have to form some views and know how to price that. Um, equally operating performance um, as these technologies and sectors have matured have, have got more predictable. So 
there's a more sort of fixed income like component to to that element but equally um, that gets priced pretty tightly so the margin for error is pretty small so having you know we have 50 engineers in in, in our team um, having um, a really good understanding of uh, the, the technologies, the, the the specific models of turbines, the panel types, the the, the inverters, you know, every component um, helps us. We hope to to get our diligence as accurate as possible and um, buy the the good assets at fair prices, uh, and then to manage them really well for the long term. And we've got we're obviously in a time where they're massively volatile energy prices. Um, you know, on, on well nearly unprecedented energy prices right now. How do you think about the risk and the, of the fluctuations in, in, in like just simple, simple power price? Generally, I think we don't take directional bets on commodity pricing. We don't say price the high will fix, price the low will wait or whatever. I think we try to think about the risk profile and the suitability for clients and to describe and price the risks appropriately. We do enter medium or even long-term PPAs where we believe there's value to do so against our valuation methodologies and, uh, and, and pricing signals, but, but we don't have a philosophical, um, you know, we love this risk and we hate that one. I think we, we have a, a methodology that allows us to price different risk profiles in different markets. Okay, interesting. And talking about, okay, profiles, markets, what about projects? Because you can have, like, to an outside observer, you say, like, you know, um, 100 megawatt wind farm, 100 megawatt wind farm, um, but with similar characteristics. But what makes one um, a, a great investment and what makes a, the other a mediocre investment? How do, you, how do you assess them? I mean, there can be a million different factors. Um, and, and both are possibly good investments at the right price. <laughs> That's the other factor. I, I, I think... Um, as I said, we have a lot of experience of what's worked well and some things that haven't worked so well. I, I think you know, doing all of the due diligence about all the aspects of the, the contracts that make, that make up those projects and analysing and valuing you know, the projects properly. I, I think to answer your question slightly by way of example, we think that if you look at the variation in returns um, between different assets and different investors and so on and so forth over something like a 25-year time horizon. With wind, 60% of that variance over 25 years is explained by the price you buy at. And 40% of the 25-year variance is by how well you run the asset over the 25 years. In bioenergy, in our team, it's more the other way around. It's 40% the buy price and 60% and the other way around. So, I mean, if you buy at the wrong price, it's really, really hard to ever make that up. That said, you're not home and hose just because you made a good investment. All right, so can I get, like, zoom out a little bit um, into, because you, you, it's interesting you say that uh, people who work here would generally be um, fans of renewables. Kind of more of a general inter infrastructure firm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So could you like define infrastructure as a, as a starter, uh, as, as an investment class? So I think it continues to evolve, infrastructure. Um, uh, I mean, infrastructure, I think, involves generally large built assets and generally longish term contracts sometimes not so much in renewables but you know ppps or concessions or uh, things with uh, explicit direct you know public sector normally counterparties procuring goods and services for for the general public in the case of renewables you, you have uh, quite a lot of state involvement normally via either a subsidy or a fixed price power contract or 
or, or some version of that. And I think in most forms of infrastructure, as a financial product, they have a degree of inflation linkage. Sometimes that's hard and firm, and sometimes it's sort of soft and assumed. But um, um, yeah, co contracts, fixed assets, medium long-term durations, and some inflation linkage. Um, infrastructure, at least uh, when, I, when I was I was doing a bit more of it, uh, wasn't you wouldn't think about it as green. Like, you know, it, it's like building, like, you know, we were kind of building cement plants, you know, mm -hmm. airports, ports, you know, like, you know, not, not things that are um, in any way green, really. But how green have, has infrastructure been historically and how's that, how's that changing? I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people who got into renewables early-ish, around the time I did, slightly earlier, slightly later, they mostly came from two worlds. They were either infrastructure people or they were energy people. And actually, there's a fundamental difference of approach between those two, and that's been one of the interesting melting pots of renewables, which is an infrastructure asset, but it's also an energy asset. Uh, so it shares some characteristics, but not all with, with general infrastructure. Um, I think um, in terms of the greening of infrastructure, so, so renewables has gone from being a smallish, niche market to, to being really very mainstream and and uh, I mean the, the renewables market in the UK there's probably 110 120 billion pounds worth of built assets now that there's compared to say 90 billion of water company so you know it, it's already properly mainstream uh, I think in terms of other parts of infrastructure we are seeing a very rapid change to try to decarbonize the whole economy. I think that's one of the lessons of people digesting the fact that while we are still emitting more carbon than we absorb, the temperature will keep rising. You know, while the, the, the level of CO2 in the atmosphere increases, the temperature will keep rising. So it won't stop increasing until we stop emitting. And so all of those sectors that you mentioned, cement, steel, my old world, and their kind of end use sectors have to decarbonize. So we have to find ways to decarbonize steel, cement, shipping, heavy industry, et cetera. And I think all of those sectors have got the memo now um, and are working out what they do on, on different timescales. But I think the, um, you know, take the UK, um, you know, the Committee of Climate Change has done a great job of, of mapping out kind of what that needs to look like, um, not just 20. 50 as some sort of aspirational arbitrary target, but what the journey and the steps need to look like to get there. And you can't get there without tackling some of the hard to abate sectors. Yes, and you don't get there by reopening a coal mine to be fueling your steel industry, you know. That's, we, 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 we don't need to go into that. Well, okay. well I think that I, 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 I don't get too excited about that, yeah. I must be honest, in that I think this challenge gets solved by changing demand, not by throttling supply. I think we have to uh, displace those materials and those emissions with something that is economic as, as a replacement. Where the coal comes from, I'm not so fussed about. Okay, I, I wouldn't vote in favour of it, but, but equally, you know, the steel industry has to decarbonise. That will eliminate the need for coal. So like, I think if you're thinking of investing in, in anything in the fossil fuel, you need to think about where's your customer in the 2040s. Yeah, but um, the the problem and the same like the the reaction to um, to to the, the war in Ukraine, in a lot of cases has been reopening of coal. So we've been we've been dis displacing gas by by taking on different fossil fuels, 
And that's if you're if you're doing that, or particularly if you're opening up a new kind of coal mine in in the UK, that's like a thirty year asset, if not more. But it won't last thirty years. It, but it shouldn't. Fail. It shouldn't last thirty years, and it should fail. Yeah. But and the same, like there's there's lots of investments that are, that are being made now that you unless they're going to be heavily supported and subsidised, then and with long term guarantees, as a investor, you're not going to be opening it. Otherwise, just rationally, economically, it wouldn't make any any sense for people. So if you're if you're building in twenty years of of emissions or thirty or thirty years of emissions into that, just makes makes that journey, the journey to net zero, that bit more difficult. Like we've, I I agree with that. E- equally on the coal point though. I think a few things have got conflated uh, in that. So, uh, yes, we've had uh, a need to uh, um, switch away from Russian gas and uh, find other sources of, of energy. And indeed, you know, Europe reduced its energy consumption by about 20% this winter. About, 10, about half of that was temperature, but about half of that was actual temperature-adjusted demand reduction. But actually what caused a lot of the German coal to come back on was the closure of German nuclear and the failures in the French nuclear fleet. So that wasn't gas to coal switching, that was nuclear to coal switching. Um, And I think if you look at the renewables build out, again, that coal is not going to last for very long. And there was a, a bit of noise here about some coal power plants being warmed up and run for a few hours, but it, but it was a few hours. We're kind of sub 1% coal over the year in the UK now. And uh, of course, big part of the reason that uh, there was failures in uh, the French markets for, for, for nuclear was global warming. Like it was, it was, uh, it was droughts. It was caused by, caused by... There was some of that. I think there were also some weld failures and um, safety case. Some of those plants are, are getting a little bit older mm. for sure. So, uh, but yes, I think your general point is absolutely right. Um, climate risks are are accelerating, no, yeah. no question. I think it, there looks a, a reasonable likelihood of being a potentially a really incredibly strong El Nino this year. So we could see really truly record temperatures back end of this year into next, which would, could, yeah. Um, that's what we're all trying to work to, to mitigate and, yeah. and prevent. But but I think things are gonna get a hell of a lot worse before they get, get better. better. No, 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 absolutely. But that kind of brings the kind of the, the interest point, kind of taking us back to, to, to kind of our overview of the, the infrastructure market. Uh, one of the big selling points of infrastructure is that it is uh, it, it's long term, it's boring, it's predictable. Uh, but with the effects of climate change being kind of increasingly increasingly felt, um, is there any um, change to your valuation methodologies when you look at it's like it's. The, you know, the, the risk then attached that climate change puts on like boring infrastructure assets. Yeah, so so we own hard physical assets, and uh, you know a solar farm can flood as easily as as anything other asset. You have to do the same sort of assessment. You mentioned risk, so so mm-hmm. uh, clearly that that's an element that we that we study pretty carefully. We do look at and have disclosed now for a few years uh, the physical risks and the transition risks uh, using the. TCFD framework, um, Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, uh, to try to disclose to all of our clients and, and investors, including obviously we manage some listed funds, uh, how we analyze and, and, and see those risks. And I think um, obviously principally our assets are there to contribute to the to the fight against those risks. That doesn't mean that we can't ignore either the physical or the transition risks. So for example, 
one of the bigger risks to what the future power price will be for renewables is actually how much renewables gets built because you have this phenomenon of cannibalization that when the sun's shining, all the solar is generating at once or when the wind's blowing strongly, you know, all the turbines are spinning. Uh, and because they have very, very low, close to zero marginal cost in marginally priced markets, you can have a very significant effect on on the economics. So, um, yeah, it's complex. We, we have to, to stay well abreast of it. Okay. And one of the ways that uh, infrastructure funds have traditionally been dealing with risk is to be trying to insure. Um, have you noticed a change in um, the insurance market's attitudes uh, on the basis of climate risks? Like, for example, I noticed that um, in, in, in Greece, it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, to to get any sort of insurance on on any on any real property just because of because of fires and it's we're now up yeah. over like approaching seventy percent of properties in around Athens are uninsurable because insurance companies are taking taking the view that no we don't want to be going be taking that risk. Yeah. Have you, you seen that in the the we market? Haven't much. I think mostly because of where our, our assets are. So we are probably seventy five percent UK. Our second largest market is Ireland. You know, neither of those prone to fires um, <laughs> that much. We did, obviously, we did have some extraordinary temperatures last summer and indeed the summer before. I'm sure we will again. But but we're not, you know, in Florida. We're not in Greece. So we do hear, because we're obviously quite well plugged into that market, th- that the natural hazard, you know, insurance market is, is struggling. Um, I think how we as a society collectively insure there is is quite a big question. I've heard people, I, I'm not a reinsurance expert, but I have heard people who are say that they don't think that the reinsurance market can solve that on its own. One of the big um, reasons that people invest in infrastructure generally is uh, diversification. So it's, uh, it's an asset that's in, in good times, it'll be, be giving you low returns, but in bad times, it'll be giving you low returns as well. Like it's just it's a, a solid, consistent, a consistent performer. Uh, but those bad times are here now. You know they've arrived and they brought an awful lot of inflation with them. Has that kind of thesis borne out in in, in valuations and experience? The three biggest things that move the valuation of our assets would be um, the power price assumptions, the inflation assumptions, and the discount rate. If you think about how those three interact, you could sort of think that that inflation and interest rate. What really matters is the real interest rate. And we have seen an increase in real interest rates, so an increase in discount rates effectively. What we have in renewables, I sort of touched on it or hinted at it earlier, is we have explicit inflation linkage. So almost all GB uh, subsidies or PPAs are explicitly uh, either RPI or CPI linked. Most continental Europeans aren't, but but those are known, those are nominal. Um, And then... In the last 12, 24 months, you obviously benefited from the, the increase in, in energy costs uh, that, that you've seen, albeit in most jurisdictions that we operate in, we have had some form of windfall tax take some of that benefit without getting dragged into the, the politics of all that. But, but the, the economics are net, net our valuations have been up. Uh, listed funds have performed fairly well. But yes, we have seen an increase in, in, in discount rates. We've seen that feed through into pricing uh, and we've tried to be disciplined through really quite a big change in base rates mm. in adjusting our, our discount rates and our, our returns accordingly. Obviously, that means that our funds are now forecasting returns that are quite considerably above where they were 24 months ago. 
Yep, but it also makes uh, new investments a bit more difficult because you have leverage, like you know, traditionally with infrastructure, you try to get a very a healthy degree of leverage. Uh, yeah, we don't use much leverage. You so. don't use much leverage. Okay, well, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so across almost all of our private funds, we have either zero or very little leverage. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think it's like we have 200 million of senior debt against 4.2 billion of equity across the fund. So virtually none. Um, in our listed funds, we have some fund level leverage, um, but that probably, I don't know, it might average 30, 35% loan to value. So we have a lot of equity. I think we think that's prudent in environments where you have quite a lot of commodity um, risk via power prices in your enterprise value. So over levering commodity prices has generally not worked out well over decades. You can get lucky for periods, but um, we don't think that's a, you know, our core client base is pension funds. So, you know, when I mentioned taking our duties seriously, you know, that that's ultimately who we've got to look after is the, the, the pensioner that's relying on that income for his or her retirement. As other assets get riskier and uh, like people were taking all sorts of crazy punts and all sorts of things when, uh, when, when money was a bit more freely available, um, and a lot of that's been 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 like been, been joked down. You see, like, like very significant asset classes have been completely completely collapsed over recent times. How has kind of, the infrastructure market been? Has there been a, a a rush towards the more kind of you know solid, stable type of investments, or has it been as diffi- difficult, difficult, yeah. also difficult for you, uh, for for infrastructure funds to be raising capital? So, I think on a relative basis, yes, you're right. With you know, not Bitcoin. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, again, that will vary by market. So I know you were going to talk, for example, about um, defined contribution pension schemes and and, and the future there. But but our core client base has been the defined benefit schemes, particularly on the the private side. And with the the gilts crisis last autumn, Mm. um, that led to them having a big fall in both assets and liabilities because of their LDI hedging programs uh, and the increase in discount rates. Most of them actually end up with a a better funding ratio than they had before. Their assets fell less than their liabilities. But because assets like ours had performed fairly well, they've ended up a much, much larger percentage of people's portfolios than they were before, what people have called the denominator effect. And that's happened quite generally across private markets. And so they have quite a large allocation to illiquid assets. And so a lot of DB pension funds won't be making many you know, illiquid commitments for quite a while. You know, that inevitably has slowed fundraising across private assets, private equity, private credit, real estate and infrastructure um, and so on. Um, uh, and I think that has also brought forward for many of them the time horizon um, under which they might look to insure away their liabilities because you need to have a high funding ratio to go to the insurers to get them to take the the liabilities away. So I think it's accelerated very significantly a transition that was already going to happen, but, you know, over a... 10, 15, even 20 year time horizon. That's been brought forward quite a lot. And seeing as we've, we've kind of uh, touched on it there, um, uh, you've just launched a new uh, long term um, asset fund, like yep. you know, a pension fund. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And yeah, sure. How, like the difficulties involved in that? Because I think, I believe it's the first of, first of a kind. So I think we've got the first and the third, or two of the three currently approved, <laughs> um, uh, which we're very proud of. Uh, uh, so I suppose 
DB pension funds in the UK started shutting sort of 20 years ago to new members and very few are open today uh, in the private sector. Some in the public sector are, uh, many in the public sector are, are still open. Um, DB is in defined benefit. Defined benefit, yes, pension plans. Um, and uh, those were replaced overwhelmingly with defined contribution schemes. But we've got this demographic change now of the big DB schemes closed, but still having a long, long tail of liabilities because many of those members are still working, never mind into retirement. They might still have 50, 60 plus years to, to go. Um, but the defined benefit schemes started with the younger members who are younger. They're earlier in the career. They're not earning as much. They're not contributing as much. So they're, they're young pension schemes. They're growing pension schemes and they're growing very fast. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so they're risk tolerance, their risk profile is slightly different. There's also a fundamental difference in the individual is taking investment performance risk, not the sponsor in the case of the DB scheme. So different um, profile there. You know, no secret, the DC market is growing very fast. It, it's not huge today. And in terms of investing in infrastructure, I think you do need a bit of scale to sensibly invest in infrastructure because you need to make reasonable side investments. You should never be you know, backing one, just one manager, even one as good as Schroeder's green coat. So, you know, you need to, 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 to spread your, your investments across, across infrastructure. And actually not many DC schemes are yet at a scale where they're really start um, able to invest in infrastructure. Some are starting to get there, which I guess has driven the government thinking about what structures the DC market is going to need. I think the LTAF structure, the long-term asset fund, is, is interesting because, because the individual takes the risk and can decide to move his or her pension when they like. You have a greater liquidity need in DC schemes that you need in, in DB, and governments spend a long time trying to think about structures that would allow them to invest in illiquid private assets for the return, the diversification, you know, all the benefits you were describing that, that, that generally we've seen in private markets in the last 20 years or so, while having sufficient liquidity to, to operate well for the benefit of, of members. So uh, we think that market should be a really good one for us. Um, it's been great to work with the Schroders team to develop those products. I think we would have really struggled to do that on our own, frankly. We need a whole range of capabilities that we don't have and, and you know, we, we can get as, as part of the wider Schroders um, firm. Great, and it's been well received? Yeah, so far it's gone down well. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Um, we have on one side um, kind of the, the green infrastructure uh, being a you know, hot topic. Like people are, there's a lot of conversation about a lot of a lot of a lot of um, a lot of need for investment. Uh, but on the other side, you have a uh, infrastructure which is traditionally very, very slow, uh, very slow moving, very, uh, very, very hard to do. And like even with renewable energy infrastructure, you know, it can take an awful long time from 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 conception until uh, until build. Um, what are the key drivers of the of the kind of the green infrastructure market? And also, and just and a secondary question: Do you see kind of the kind of the global situation where you know, like uh, Joe Biden's various uh, various acts, uh, the um, European Union, and of course the situation in Ukraine? What kind of impact are they playing into what you, I guess, would have said were the drivers two years ago? Yeah, we know as we discussed earlier, that we need to decarbonise our entire economy to have a sustainable planet and, and, and so on for, for um, our successors to, to inhabit. Uh, that's an, an enormous challenge. I think uh, energy is fundamental to 
modern life, to, to, to human life. I think anyone who questions that just needs to look at the prices people were actually prepared to pay for fuels and energy last year. Um, I think it's probably kind of number three after food and water uh, in, in terms of kind of basic needs. So, And just um, simple quality of life things, if you look at like, you know, the, the, the geographic south and yep. the quality of life that of people who yep. have yep. You know, yep. readily available energy as opposed to, to those who don't. Yeah, yep. it's absolutely fundamental. So if we have to decarbonise and energy is fundamental, then renewable energy is kind of quite quite high up the list of things that are going to be needed. So I think the, 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 the drivers um, were already very strong. Then Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, so in Europe and, and uh, well, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, GB, et cetera, there's a, an even further impetus to accelerate some of that, that transition that was already moving quite fast. I mean, our business has grown at a, at a reasonable rate for, for 10 years or so, and I, and I don't think we see that slowing down anytime soon. Mm. It's obviously going to move beyond energy. So using, so I think we see the strategy of decarbonisation as first of all, decarbonise power. Mm -hmm. That's the easiest thing to decarbonise. We know how to do it. We can now do it very cost effectively. It is cheaper than coal and gas pretty much anywhere in the world now, even allowing for intermittency and storage and flexibility and all that, all that kind of stuff. So decarbonise power first. Then use that clean power to decarbonise everything that you reasonably can. So fortunately, electric vehicles are going to make a huge dent in passenger car emissions. Uh, but obviously only of actual benefit if that power is, is clean to start with. Similarly for, for heating, building heating. I think heat pumps will decarbonise most heating and, and better air conditioning systems will, will take a, um, you know, using heat pump type technology will, will take a lot of the, the load there. So, so um, that's probably uh, a lot of the challenge of the rest of this decade in the, the 2030s. And I think then you've got the harder to abate sectors that we were talking about earlier. So, so steel is 9% of global emissions, cement is 8% of global emissions. I think shipping is about six, aviation is about four or two or something, you know. So those are probably going to need some combination of hydrogen and maybe some carbon capture, sorry, agriculture. Mass is one that, that we haven't, um, haven't uh, covered yet, but we've got a little while for the harder to abate sectors, but not masses if we need to build the technologies, the supply chains, the capabilities, the knowledge, you know, the whole industries to decarbonise those. And if you look at the climate maths, we've got to be making a, a real dent in those by kind of 2035, and we've got to be pretty much there in the 2040s. So those investment decisions are, are, are being made now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're and we're, we're we're still on the wrong path. Like we need to be doing kind of seven percent compounds, um, you know, reductions, and we're what, what, this year probably two two and a half percent increase. Like it's it's just we're just we're the, we're the wrong way around. But no, I fully agree. But before we um, kind of dig into some of those really interesting sectors you mentioned, particularly kind of heat and agriculture, two two of your your, your special subjects. It's interesting that you that you mentioned that um, renewables are already kind of cost competitive with with, with gas and coal, even uh, considering a long term energy storage. What do you see as the um, the solution to long term energy storage? I know obviously everything everywhere all at once. Uh, mm. What 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 technologies do you think will be solving um, that that makes you feel confident to make that statement? So, I think probably four, and I think they all do different jobs. Um, I think it's clear that short-term balancing will be done by batteries. Um, Lithium-ion continues to, to fall in, in cost and improving performance and, and other technologies may 
come behind it, but the combination of both utility-scale batteries and the batteries inherent in the EV fleet as that rolls out uh, are going to do a lot of the short-term balancing, but it is really short-term. Hard to see batteries going beyond hours, you know, a few hours. Um, at the really long duration end, I think it's going to have to be we think some form of gas or liquid storage, and I think hydrogen and or its derivatives is probably going to be the fundamental. I mean, gas, natural gas, methane is the shock absorber now. Uh, I, I think hydrogen or hydrogen stored as methanol, ammonia, etc., probably does quite a lot of the um, the long duration of the interseasonal. But so that those aren't prohibitive, um, I think we're going to need a lot more interconnection between power markets, so the wind's always blowing somewhere or the, the sun is always blowing somewhere. I think that reduces the intermittency need. Sorry, I said four, I think there's five. Um, pumped hydro uh, does a job in the middle. So, you know, somewhere between kind of many minutes and days, um, pumped hydro is very good for. That can be supplemented with interconnectors because pumped hydro is obviously dependent on geography and geology and where you've got the, the reservoirs and the reserves and, and so on and so forth. So the interconnectors mean you can rent or pay for or whatever other people's um, uh, pumped hydro reserves. And then I think demand-side response. Um, and I don't mean, you know, people turning the, the lights off when power demand is. I, I, I mean, uh, smart homes and smart charging of cars and heat pumps actually allow a lot more flexibility because you don't have to be on the whole time. They can turn off for an hour or two when power's really expensive and uh, 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 and use the kind of um, thermal fabric to to, to, to to modulate temperature more gradually. So so I think demand side is going to play quite a big role too. Okay, fantastic. Now, will we kind of move on to, to kind of more kind of areas that you're, you're particularly kind of interested in, in at the moment in your current position, uh, those of kind of bioenergy and, uh, and I guess kind of, what, what would you call it, kind of smart agriculture? Uh, well, renewable heating horticulture, okay. yes, yes. Okay, so, so first off with bioenergy, could yep. you, um, you know, define what uh, bioenergy is? Yes, I can define what bioenergy is in the types that we do. So, so bioenergy is deriving energy from some biomass that was alive relatively recently, as in, you know, within the last couple of decades. We have focused on uh, domestically sourced, uh, normally but not exclusively waste-derived biomasses. So we own two waste wood um, combustion plants that, that take end-of-life products, floorboards, roof trusses, old IKEA furniture, and the like, uh, and uh, burn those for, for energy, that being carbon neutral because the, the, the net forestry stock, if approximately constant, takes in the same volume of CO2 as is emitted when, when that material is burnt. Uh, we have a straw-fired power plant that takes some of the, this actually quite a small fraction of, but, but some of the, the straw that's the, the residue from, from cereal crops and produce energy from that. Uh, and we have a forestry residue project uh, up in Scotland that, that um, provides combined heat, combined heat and power to a local whiskey distillery and the, and the grid. Um, then we have some anaerobic digestion projects that take a combination of uh, crops and agricultural wastes and byproducts, chicken litter um, um, and the like, brewery waste, sugar beet, uh, digest those mostly to produce gas for the gas network and CO2 for uh, mostly food and drink, actually. So, so that's our main biomass areas. We haven't done any of the large-scale imported biomass. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's most of what we've done. 
Okay, and um, there's a kind of the, the, the old timers in the uh, environmental sector will uh, remember the kind of the, the biomass, uh, the, the the energy crops bubble, and these types of issues. Um, but it sounds like you're not you're you're only using essentially waste materials, and that's how how you're you're not um, you're not only using waste materials. But I think we are have been for a long, long time very conscious of the food versus fuel debate. Yeah. We didn't do any of the um, early biofuel investments, uh, corn ethanol and the like. Um, look, any form of bioenergy, you have a land use challenge. And I think land use challenges generally are one of the more difficult things in the environmental, um, you know, for, for the planet health, how we manage biodiversity, um, how we manage all of the ecosystem services that we need to, to, to support life. That, that is, that's a big challenge. Um, and I mean, all forms of renewables are to some extent land intensive. Um, one of the major lessons of David Mackay's landmark book from, from 2008. And I think we're, we're conscious of that and we try to make sensible decisions. Okay, okay. And um, do you see that there is a role for, I think there's a lot of discuss, uh, discussion on, um, you know, let's say like willow for biochar or uh, miscanthus for anaer- anaerobic digestion feedstock or that yeah. type of, like, the the really efficient growth that you can then be using for in in an AD process or in yeah. a biochar process? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons I say maybe is I think I sketched out earlier our view of the decarbonisation trajectory. One of the bigger unknowns is sort of how we do the last 20%. So um, most people think we will need maybe 10 gigatons or so a year of carbon capture of some form nature-based solutions or actual, you know, carbon capture and storage un- undersea. So, so how are we going to do those negative emissions? It tends a lot. Yeah, it is quite a lot. If we have 50 gross emissions now, mm. um, I, I don't think we'll do 10 mm. by carbon capture and sticking it underground. Just do the maths on how much space there is underground, how quickly that'll run out. It, 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 it can't work. We need an industry putting twice the volume back in to the ground that we're currently taking out as fossil fuels that feels quite punchy to to have that operating in in 30 years time so well-managed bioenergy maybe some biochar uh, i think plays a role in some of those negative emissions but how exactly that plays out i think um there's a little bit of time to for the markets to find the right answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the difficulty to decarbonise sectors where it's almost impossible to completely decarbonise them, so there will be some need for some carbon capture storage utilisation at the, in the end, it's a question of what it looks like. Um, what, direct air capture, do you have a, a, a kind of view on, I know it's difficult and it's energy intensive and all that, but yeah, do you have a view on that? I, I think I worry a bit with all these things, direct air capture and geoengineering and so on and so forth, that they're a little bit sort of silver bullet um, and oh, don't worry, that'll fix it. Or uh, we'll we'll be able to do it for 100 quid a ton, so we, we don't need to invest in anything that costs more than 100 quid a ton to abate. I mean, those numbers could be out by a factor of four. We just have no idea what this is going to cost. And if, if you think about it from a risk management perspective, you know, managing the health of the planet, I think, is one of the most important risk management tasks we all have. So how much do we want to bet on, you know, these magic bullets coming along in 30 years' time and fixing the problem for us, nuclear fusion or you know, iron oxide in the oceans and so on and so forth. So so I I don't go quite as far as some sort of the environmental movement that say it's a fossil fuel funded distraction to, you know, uh, to allow them to, to keep operating. But I do worry that um, some people kind of kind of fix on that as a, 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 a fix on those as, as end goals when 
I think we know the task that needs to be done for the next 10 or 15 years. We need to build masses of renewables. We need to scale up EVs. We need to stop, you know, we need to stop buying combustion cars. Um, we need to decarbonize heating through heat pumps. And we need to build a probably hydrogen economy for decarbonizing a lot of the hard to decarbonize sectors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time, we should working on, on natural capital. We should be working on how we can do that carbon capture. But, but, the mass says that isn't really needed until the 2040s. It sounds like you're, you're, you're positive about the role of hydrogen in the future. And now hydrogen itself it like is a very complicated like subject. There's like rainbows of different types of types of hydrogen, quite literally. Where do you see hydrogen has a place and where it does where where it doesn't have a place? Because there's yeah, great there's question. A lot, a lot, a lot um, so time will tell. I think we think it will be used for for decarbonizing some of those hard to abate sectors. So not just as an energy vector, but also as a reducing agent in, in steelmaking, for example, um, displacing the, the coal. Um, so maybe hydrogen for DRI. I'm sure electric art furnaces will continue to grow. It's a very mature technology. They've been around for a long time uh, and they are mostly decarbonized by, by using scrap. But I think we'll probably use hydrogen to make DRI to make steel instead of um, you know, metallurgical coking coal. I think hydrogen will be quite a big, again, input for energy and reduction purposes into cement manufacture. I think e-fuels of some forms, either something like e-methanol, where you obviously need a, a CO2 molecule to go with the hydrogen molecule to make the methanol, or possibly even, uh, or not possibly, I think likely to also be ammonia. We don't need the, the, the CO2 molecule uh, for shipping. Green ammonia for agriculture, we touched on that earlier. I think where it won't, when we think it's really hard to think that hydrogen plays much of a role in heating. It's just so expensive to, to go to all that trouble of making hydrogen from renewable electricity, piping it, transporting it, burning it, all the losses that you get in each stage compared to a heat pump where you get a coefficient of performance of three, three and a half, you know, whatever. Um, over the period that the, even if you have some fossil component in the um, in the electricity, and I think we won't have much fossil component in the electricity by the 2030s. Um, the I think heat pumps will simply out-compete hydrogen. Hydrogen will be too expensive to use for heating, never mind the um, the health and safety risks of, of actually having hydrogen in the home. Sure. Well, we had uh, here in the UK um, the Government Hydrogen Strategy 21, which was uh, high on fanfare and low on detail. What do you think that the problem with the UK um, renewable strategy is and what's the solution, what policies we'd like to see put, see put, in, put in place to help with the level of deployment that we, we so badly need? So, so I think that's slightly unfair on, on UK regulators, slightly. Uh, I, I think, um, so there is the hydrogen um, allocation rounds for you know, electrolytic hydrogen, uh, coming through, so government's procuring 250 megawatts this year in this round of, of green hydrogen. It aims to procure 750 in the next round. So I think that is a start to, to building an, an industry. I think they have tried to learn from some of the successes. I think the UK, you know, has been a world leader in offshore wind, and, and hats off to uh, to some of the the, the regulators. Uh, in fact, one of them was so good we hired him, who who, who made that happen through through listening to what long-term capital needed to, to fund those long-term assets. So I hope we can build a hydrogen economy in, in stages. I think where we haven't got it quite right is more on the industrial strategy side. So 
we've wrestled with this for, for a long time um, uh, in the UK. US is betting very heavily through the uh, Inflation Reduction Act on domestic manufacturing and conditions around US content for, to be eligible for the tax credits and the, the subsidies and so on. And that is driving tens of billions of dollars of, of investment into, into the US in, in manufacturing capacity. Um, similarly, Europe is um, putting in place things that, that we'll probably see investment in European manufacturing. I don't honestly know, and that this is as someone who spent the first 10 years of their career in, in UK manufacturing, what, what is the best strategy for the UK? Um, is it to try to compete with, with that type of regime and, and build our own nascent industries, or to be a very attractive use market for those and to specialise in, in deployment and, and roll out and do our job well and therefore cost effectively for UK consumers and taxpayers and so on. I feel like long term the UK is going to struggle to compete with the industrial might of you know, China, India and the US uh, and needs to focus on where it has comparative advantage. Um, but I don't, I think we need to be thoughtful and strategic about where we do support our, our manufacturing industries. And I think we've not got that okay. brilliant over time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And kind of move into um, supporting you know, you know, good in- innovations and, um, and, and um, uh, industries here. I could talk a little bit about the, kind of the, the, your, your green agriculture and uh, low carbon uh, yeah. greenhouses. Yeah. 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 yeah that's been um, fascinating investment. So, so we came at it mainly actually as a renewable heating project. Okay. Um, so a greenhouse needs heat something like 3,800 hours a year, give or take, so 40% of a year, uh, which makes it quite a stable sort of heat load. Mm. Um, most heating systems might run 1,500, 1,800 hours a, hours a year. And what the developers turned our, our projects have done is, is uh, done a great job of, of marrying a really reliable heat source, a wastewater treatment works, a sewage works that you know runs 24-7, 365 for, for very obvious reasons. Um, and through that process generates a large quantity of heat. Now it's not very hot, but that warm water discharging into rivers currently contains a lot of heat. And so we can extract some of that heat uh, via heat exchangers and pipe warm water across fields. Piping warm water is relatively cheap um, uh, to an energy center and then use heat pumps to raise that water to what a grower needs at sort of 50-ish degrees C to warm a greenhouse most of a year. And then they've done some really good engineering around how you integrate the energy centre and provide CO2 to the growers, which is also a fundamental input into horticulture. Uh, and so we're not horticulture experts. We would never profess to be. Uh, we lease our glass houses to people who are horticulture experts and the growers, and, and they run those and they grow the crops and they sell them to the retailers and, and, and uh, keep the, the shelf supply. We have learned a lot about that industry through these investments. I think it's a fascinating industry. Uh, it's been on the front pages you know, quite a lot in the last few months as a result of um, challenges in the supply chains providing year-round supply to supermarkets, but, but large quantities coming from southern Spain and Morocco and so on, driven in part by energy costs, where in those parts of the world they need less external energy, it's warmer, um, but that does put greater supply chain risk into, into UK retail. So when you know, weather events happen, we're, we're suddenly very vulnerable. So I think we are making a contribution towards sort of food security domestically and doing so in a, in a relatively low carbon way. So um, yeah, great. fascinating. It's, like, I've really enjoyed this. I think, I think it's been, been, been a really, really good conversation, really, really interesting. 
Um, if people are out here are, are listening, let's say like someone, someone from a, like sitting in an MBA class or someone who's kind of sitting sitting in the steel industry, and thinks, yeah, I kind of like kind of like the sound of that. You know, would like to kind of get involved in infrastructure and get involved and try and try and make a difference in the energy transition, uh, and you know, particularly with the idea of that kind of you know the the innovation that's being supported there there uh, in the back of the mind. Uh, what would your pitch be to to somebody sitting there going, you know what? I kind of like the sound of that. I mean, I think the pitch is easier probably than it was uh, 15 years ago um, um, because I think the need is now so obvious. I, I think there's a, it's an incredible time to join this industry. There's an incredible range of opportunities for people with good ideas uh, or, or people to build a career of, of all sorts of different types. And, and this is no, long, no longer a niche industry. It's a, it's a large industry and it's, it's increasingly mature. Uh, and in some ways, that makes it a little bit harder and a little bit more conventional, you know, in terms of the hiring strategies and how people get in. Um, but but there's also a incredible, incredible range of of opportunities. So I think it it's as with any other career. I think if you if you find that intersection between something you're really good at and something you really enjoy, then you're then you're probably in an okay place. Um, and I'd en I'd encourage anyone who uh, has that that um, passion and, and belief in in a sector to try and find a way to pursue it. Okay, well, to try and bring whatever particular skills that they they, yeah, ha they what, have. But... What, what are you really good at? What can you do? What can you do better than anyone else? Uh, what what can you bring to 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 a company, to an industry, to a you know, Brilliant. to a role? Okay, lovely. James, thank you so much for your time. No, thank it's you. Absolutely... Enjoyed it. It's been a brilliant conversation. Thank, thank you. So much. Take care. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels, and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.